So 2 Kings chapter 4. And I want to read, just as an introduction to, to set the scene, I'm going to use this little story as, a, as an illustration to make a point, and then I'm going to carry it through a few other places in the Scriptures. So 2 Kings chapter 4, verse 8. <clears throat> One day Elisha went to Shunem, and a well-to-do woman was there who urged him to stay for a meal. So whenever he came by, he stopped there to eat. She said to her husband, I know that this man who often comes our way is a holy man of God. Let's make a small room on the roof and put in it a bed and a table, a chair and a lamp for him. Then he can stay there whenever he comes to us. One day when Elisha came, he went up to his room and lay down there. He said to his servant Gehazi, call the Shunammite. So he called her and she stood before him. Elisha said to him, tell her you have gone to all this trouble for us. Now what can be done for you? Can we speak on your behalf to the king or the commander of the army? She replied, I have a home among my own people. What can be done for her? Elisha asked. Gehazi said, well, she has no son and her husband is old. And Elisha said, call her. So he called her and she stood in the doorway. About this time next year, Elisha said, you will hold a son in your arms. No, my Lord, she objected. Don't mislead your servant, O man of God. But the woman became pregnant. And the next year, about that same time, she gave birth to a son, just as Elisha had told her. And Father, we ask that as we think about this little story, and as we move beyond it and survey other things in the Scriptures, that you will stir our hearts this morning, that your Word and your Spirit will together bring life to us. In Jesus' name, Amen. Familiar story, and what I want to do with it is I want to use the, the child as a type or as a symbol for something, and I want to use Elisha as a symbol for something. This woman looked after Elisha every time he came through town, stayed at her house, she had a little room ready for him, and he went up there, and that was his place. And I want to use Elisha, as we go through this, as a picture of God picture of God. So, so when we're talking about Elisha and Elisha's room upstairs, I want you to think we're, we're thinking about God in that, in that context. And then the son that this woman has, I want to use the son as a picture of a promise. I'm going to use the word dream. Whenever God puts something in the heart of a person, gives them a calling. There's lots of different words that people would use. They would maybe talk about a calling, a purpose, a promise, a dream. And I want the child to represent a dream from God. This, this woman was desperate for a son. And Elisha speaks the word to her and she receives a promise at that moment. And I want to use the boy to represent the promise, Elisha to represent God. Now, I want to clarify what I mean by the word dream, just in case I'd be misunderstood. Not that you ever misunderstand, like a couple of weeks ago when I 
tried to explain that we weren't going to have nuts in table anymore. And I said that table was not free. And some of you heard me say that table is not free. And thought that you were going to have to start paying at the door in order to come in. And there was much confusion, Jan. People were saying to me, why did you say that at the start? And I didn't say that. Not. Say not. N-U-T. Not. Not. Okay. Not. Not. Um, So... Sometimes I'd be misunderstood. I don't want to be misunderstood on this. When I use the word dream throughout this message, don't think my personal ambition or my own little whims or the things that I would like. Don't think, well, I would like this job, this house, this spouse, you know, this whatever. Don't, don't think about all of those things that, you, that, that people in secular society might say, well, I dream of having this. When I use the word dream in this message, I want you to think, Kingdom dreams. Dreams that have a purpose that people would know Jesus. That they would hear about him and that they would put their faith in him and that they would be transformed by him through the power of the Spirit. That's what I mean by the word dream. Keep that as we, as we go along. That's what we're talking about. We've already heard about a kingdom dream this morning to put New Testaments in every house that we possibly can together with a whole crowd of other people. That's a kingdom dream, okay? Now, what happens to this woman's dream? In verse 18, the child grew, and one day he went out to his father, who was with the reapers. My head, my head, he said to his father. His father told a servant, carry him to his mother. After the servant had lifted him up and carried him to his mother, the boy sat on her lap until noon, and then he died. And the question is, what do you do with a dead dream? What do you do with a dead dream? This woman, all she wanted was this child. The promise came. It became a reality for a period of time. And then tragedy struck. And the dream was dead. What do you do with a dead dream? What do you do with those things that you feel God has placed on your heart for the kingdom? And for whatever reason, they've died. Whenever something dies, there are two options regarding what you do. One is to have a funeral, to bury it, to put a a headstone with it, something that you visit to have memories stirred. And many churches are surrounded by by graves and and anytime if if I'm walking through the town praying, uh, I always walk through the graveyard at the top of the town. But I think a lot of churches are surrounded by graveyards that you can't actually see. Graveyards where people have buried their dreams. Remember, kingdom dreams. Graveyards where people have buried the calling of God on their lives. And I think if we could put on some sort of special glasses and take a walk around one of those invisible graveyards, we would look and we would read headstones and we would read things like, Children's ministry rests here. Somebody had a dream and a calling 
and, some, and it came from God, but for some reason it died and they buried it. Somebody else, might, you know, you may walk to another one and it, and it maybe says Bible teaching ministry. Someone tremendous passion and burden for the word and for communicating it, but it's now dead and it's buried. Maybe another headstone says evangelism. Maybe another one says mission. Maybe another one says marriage ministry. Maybe another one says church planting. Maybe another one says ministry to the poor. Maybe another one says ministry to single mothers. And so on and so on. And all of these gravestones around this graveyard that I can see in my mind where dreams have died and people have buried them. And that's where they lie. And occasionally maybe they go back in their memory and think, well... You know, do you remember that time that, that we, we did this and it was really good? We did it for six months. We did it for two years, five years. Uh, and then it just got really tight and we had, to, we had to leave it. And we buried it and forgot about it. Starts well and, and, grad, and it gains momentum. And there's lots of people with you cheering you on. And, 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 and then all of a sudden it hits a really difficult time. And you let it go. Somebody says to you, you're too busy. Somebody says you're too old. Somebody says you're, 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 you know, it'll take too long. Somebody says it'll cost too much, too much energy, too much money, too much sacrifice. And you bury it. First option, if a dream has died, is to have a funeral. This woman is made of stronger stuff. Second option, when something has died, is to have a resurrection. Our God is a God who specializes in resurrection. And this woman did not bury her child. In 2 Kings chapter 4, verse 21, just after the, she, you know, picture the scene. Again, as, as you read, let your imagination picture the scene. See that little house. See that woman. See that child, that little boy in her lap, sat on her lap until noon, and then he died. Verse 21, she went up, and led him on the bed of the man of God. She didn't arrange a funeral. She didn't dig a grave. She took her dream upstairs to that place where God is. <laughs> Up to that place, I want you to visualize it as, as the place of prayer, private prayer, corporate prayer, the place where you meet God. She took the dream back upstairs and she set it on the bed and she went after Elisha. And it's quite funny, I'll not take time to read the rest of the chapter, but it's quite funny, she, she encounters Gehazi whenever she's on the way to find Elisha. Gehazi is Elisha's servant. And she, she asks, she, she, she basically, Gehazi asks her, are you all right? Are you okay? Is everything all right? If somebody could close the kitchen door, it would be really helpful. Um, she, she, thank you, she she responds to him, yes, I'm fine. Have you ever done that? Somebody asks you, is everything okay? Something awful has happened. Somebody says to you, is everything okay? And you say, fine, where is the man of God? That's basically what she says to him. Gehazi, I know you're not the genuine article. And I'm not going to pour out my heart to you. Where is the man of God? Are you okay, woman? Yeah, I'm fine. Where's Elisha? People know People know who it is that they can really bring their broken, <clears throat> dead dreams to. And Elisha comes, 
And he does something quite strange. Gehazi tries and Gehazi doesn't succeed. And Elisha comes and goes up to that room where the boy is on the bed. And it says in verse 34, he got onto the bed and lay on the boy, mouth to mouth, eyes to eyes, hands to hands. And he stretched himself out on him and the boy's body grew warm. Little warning, don't do that. <laughs> if somebody comes for prayer, don't do that. <laughs> okay, I heard this in church, lie down, you know, no. Um, don't, don't do it. It's a very bizarre thing that he does. But as you meditate on it, especially the mouth-to-mouth, the eyes-to-eyes, the hands-to-hands, the mouth. Remember, I'm picturing Elisha as God. What comes out of God's mouth? Two things, his word and his spirit, his breath. And if you have a dream that is dead, you need to bring it for resurrection to the word and to the spirit. We have a list of things on the wall, a list of values. It's impossible to rank them other than the top one, that Jesus is Lord and he's over everything. But you see that one word and spirit. We need the word of God. We need the spirit of God. And as Elisha lies on this child and puts his mouth to his mouth, I believe that's a picture of how God's word and God's spirit can come into our broken dead dreams, our kingdom dreams, and revive them again. It only takes a word. Have you ever experienced it where something has happened and you feel dejected about something? You feel um, just demoralized, but a half a verse. You're reading in the morning. You're reading in the evening. You're listening to someone. You're, You're sitting around a table with Bibles open with other people and a half a verse suddenly injects life again. The Spirit just quickens it into your heart. And I'll not regale you with stories that I've told you before, but the times in the past four or five years when God's word has just put a surge of new life into me and into this. Just a phrase, just a Bible reading plan, and you're just doing it. um, And suddenly some obscure little passage in Ezra just hits you like a bolt into your heart. And you get up and you keep going table would not be here and every ministry within it would not be here if it wasn't for the word of God and the spirit of God. And then I see God's eyes. As Elisha puts his eyes on the child's eyes, God's eyes, and I think vision, clear vision. I have a Ford Focus And the most marvelous thing on that Ford Focus is a little button that causes the front windscreen to heat up. And within about 30 seconds or a minute, if it's frosted or if it's got moisture on it, it all goes and you can see clearly. I'm sure other cars have that as well, but it's a wonderful thing. And you're driving down the road sometimes in the morning and you see these folks and they've they've cleared a wee circle in the window and they're sort of... They're doing about 60 when they're peeping out through it and you've got this wide open, you know, lovely clear windscreen. We need clear vision. 
Sometimes the dream, the kingdom dream, just needs a fresh injection of vision. Where do we go now? What do we do next? God just needs to give us revelation in terms of how do we move forward. And I think to, to give you just a, a, a biblical um, precedent for that, that usually happens in community. You know, God can speak to you and show you and, and open up your eyes to things in private, but frequently it is whenever you sit with four, five, six other people and you put your heart on the table and you said, you know what, at the minute the, the window is sort of steamed up, in that context, that's when the button gets pushed and, and you bounce things off other people and they bounce them off you and you get vision for your dream. And then God's hands. God's hands in the Bible always speak of power. In, in ancient warfare, you fought with your hands. Without your hands, you could do nothing. And one of the things that kings and, and commanders frequently did to their enemy was, once they caught them, they cut off their hands, which was basically like the equivalent of decommissioning uh, a nuclear army in, 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 uh, in modern terms. You can't fight and you can't do any more damage because your hands have been cut off. Hands speak of power. And God's hands speak of power coming in to this dead dream, giving it power. If what God has called you to do can be done without his power, then you've misheard him. You've misheard him. Because God will always call us to things that can only be done if his power is driving it. So I see his, his, his word and his spirit in his mouth, coming out of his mouth. I see vision from his eyes and I see power in his hands. And the dream is resurrected. The boy lives again. His body grows warm. Anybody got, anybody got a cold, dead dream that needs to be warmed again? Let me just show you how frequently this happens in the Bible where, where a promise comes to someone. And for some reason it dies, but then it's resurrected again. I've put a few verses up here just to, to sort of speed us on so you don't have to turn to them all. Abraham is one example. Abraham's told that he will have a son. He is 75 years old when he's told. No son comes. When he's 86 years old, he hears it again. No son comes. And when he's 99, finally the son comes. And in between, what Abraham tries to do is he tries to fast-track things. We have a habit of doing that. We're, we're, we're impatient. God wants to achieve something in the, in the process, and we want to shortcut the process and get to the end point. And Abraham is impatient, and he tries, and he does have a son by his own strength, outside of God's power, and it all goes pear-shaped, and he ends up delaying things more than anything. But God's word comes back to him again in Genesis 17. And God says that you will be the father of many nations. This is what I spoke to you at the start. Yes, your sin and your wrong choices, and we can do this as well, where we sin and we make wrong choices and the dream can then lie dead. God gets over that. God forgives that. And God comes in with a fresh word. It's the same word he said before. It's going to happen. I am going to do it. The dream of Abraham having a child is resurrected. A thought went through my mind this morning as I saw hands being laid on my Mac. I thought I know what it felt like whenever Isaac was on that altar. For, and Abraham was the thing most precious to him was being given up. You know? 
Um, Joseph is another one. Joseph has a dream, a literal dream. And the dream is that his family are going to bow before him. I think Joseph misinterpreted that. I wonder sometimes can God say things to us and give us promises and kingdom dreams and then we get just a little bit uh, consumed with our self-importance and we misinterpret the way it's all going to work out. But Joseph has this dream when he's a young man and then he ends up uh, in prison and it looks like the dream's dead. As he sits in prison, forgotten about how on earth is this dream ever going to become a reality? But you read in the story of Joseph, Joseph over and over again, God was with him. God was with him. And you see in the story of Joseph, not only was God with him, but there's a beautiful little picture when he's in prison. He's in with somebody that works with bread, and he's in with somebody else that works with wine. Beautiful picture. And in that situation, the dream gets resurrected and Joseph is brought out of prison and Joseph's family do bow down to him. Maybe not in exactly the same context that he initially thought, but the dream revives again despite Joseph's arrogance, despite the period of time that had to be taken to break that. The dream is alive again. One of my favorites is Samson. Anyone that's known me for a while knows that I'm a little bit obsessed with Samson. I love the story of Samson. And in Judges 13, verse 5, the the promise is spoken. The dream is given. He will take the lead in delivering Israel from the hands of the Philistines. That's the promise. That's the dream spoken over this life. But Samson was a mess. He was just a moral disaster. He was selfish and he he, he just did whatever he wanted on a whim, took what he wanted, went where he wanted, abused the gifts and the power that God had given him. He was a total disaster. And he ends up in prison. He ends up blind, his hair has been shaved off and his strength has gone. And he's doing the work of a donkey, pushing a a millstone round and round to to grind out grain. It is a picture of utter hopelessness. And at that moment, if anyone was to sit down and take a look at that and say, well, do you think he's going to deliver Israel from the Philistines or begin to deliver Israel from the Philistines? The answer is a resounding no. The dream is dead. Dead, blind, without strength, and doing the work of a donkey. It's dead. But there's a little phrase towards the end of Judges 16. And I would, I would urge you not to pass over these little details in your Bible. If you're into underlining and you're into writing things on your Bible, you want to underline this and beside it write the word hope. You read this verse that says, The hair on his head began to grow back again. And you think that's just a little that's just a little historical detail. That's just a little point in the narrative as 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 the, the situation is being described. You know, let's no no no. This is hope. This is massive hope. In the middle of the, the dark, dirty hole that Samson was stuck in, the hair begins to grow back. And if you know how to read, you're reading that and you're thinking Something's going to happen. Something's going to happen. Something's going to come of this. And sure enough, the Philistines bring out Samson and they say, Samson, entertain us. And he brings the house down. (laughs) And it says that he killed more in his death than in his life. Did, Did the promise of God get fulfilled? Yes, it did. It died, but it was resurrected. And even just this week, I noticed one 
in Ruth. I've enjoyed reading Ruth this week. I know lots of us are, are going to Word in the City and BSF, and I just want to declare, we were chatting about this last night, a few of us, I love it. <laughs> I love it. I just love sitting with open Bibles. I love reading it on my own and thinking about the questions. And the, the, I, I like the lecture. But you see, you see that moment for an hour on a Thursday night when, when you know, eight, or, eight or people or so are sitting around the table with open Bibles just talking about the Word. It's magic. It's just magic. And I was thinking about the story of Ruth. And Ruth, we, we talk about Ruth. This is a beautiful little story. It's beautiful. And we use all these nice uh, words about Ruth. And if you were to say to someone who'd never read it before, you go and read Ruth. It's a beautiful little story. They would read chapter one and think, what is your idea of a beautiful story? Because we have Elimelech dies, Malin dies, and Killian dies. And Naomi turns against God and there's tension in the relationship and Orpah is sent back home and there's, there's a whole squabbling session with Naomi and Ruth. Go home, leave me alone. But Ruth insists on sticking with her and you're getting to the end of the chapter and you're just thinking, this is bleak. Ruth's little dream of a family is gone. Her husband's dead. A widow was a, was a, was a horrendous label. To have in that culture. Horrendous. But at the end of Ruth 1. Again you've got one of these little phrases. That looks like it's just a bit of narrative. But it's not. It's hope. The barley harvest was beginning. The famine was over. And in Bethlehem the house of bread. God was beginning to work again. And Ruth does get a husband and she does get a child. And God puts her not only into a family where you read about Ruth and Boaz and Obed live happily ever after. No, God puts her right into the line of Jesus. He resurrects the dream. He resurrects the dream. Israel itself as a nation hears uh, God says to Moses that, that I have come down to rescue them from the Egyptians to bring them up out of that land into a good and spacious land, a land flowing with milk and honey. There's the promise. I have a people, they're in slavery, I'm going to give them a land of their own. And sure enough, God does bring them out of slavery in Egypt, brings them eventually into their own land. But in that land, they don't observe Sabbath as they should. And they engage in the idolatry of the nations around them as they shouldn't have done. And God says, out you go. And he sends them into exile in Babylon. And in exile in Babylon, they say, our bones are dried up and our hope is gone and we are cut off. The dream's dead. The dream of a land, the promise of God is dead and buried in Babylon. But Ezekiel comes with a word from God. And not only does he come with a word from God, he comes with the spirit of God. And I'll not linger long here because you're probably fed up with me preaching on Ezekiel 37. But the word comes and the spirit comes and there is resurrection. And God says to them, it's lovely there when you compare those two verses. You say our bones are dried up and our hope is gone and we are cut off. This is what God says. It's like family fortunes, isn't it? You know, you say and then the noise of the buzzer. God says. God says, and that's what matters. God says, my people, I'm going to open your graves 
I'm going to give you a resurrection. I'm going to open your graves, bring you up from them, and bring you back to the land of Israel. The Word and the Spirit brings a resurrection. Into the New Testament, and you've got Peter. And the promise, the dream that Peter receives from Jesus. You are Peter, and on this rock, I will build my church. And not long after that, Peter denies Jesus three times. Publicly, vigorously denies Jesus. And then Jesus rises from the dead. And Peter probably thinks he might build his church, but he's not going to build it on me. You ever thought that? God might do that thing, but he's not going to do it through me because of what I've done, what I've said, who I am, my history, whatever. Peter I believe, thought, that's great, build away. I'll just fade into the, into the distance and be forgotten about and be that person in the Bible that everybody says, what a, what a disaster he was. But Jesus won't let that happen. Jesus won't let him slip away into obscurity. And the way Mark tells the resurrection story is beautiful because he records how one of the angels at the tomb says, he has risen, go and tell his disciples and Peter. Now, the words and Peter are not necessary in that verse. Peter's one of the disciples. If you're told to go and bring a message to the disciples, that's going to include Peter. You don't need to say that. But the angel speaking says, you make sure you tell Peter. Because right now, Peter has a dead dream. Right now, Peter thinks that I am not going to use him. Right now, Peter thinks that the promise that I made to him is gone and he should just bury it and forget about it and visit it occasionally and think nice things about it. Right now, Peter needs to know that I'm alive. I'm alive. And the dream that I've given him will also be resurrected. So Jesus says to Peter in John 21, the word comes. Jesus says to him, take care of my sheep. The dream's alive again. And not only does the word come to Peter, but the spirit comes. In Acts 2 and in Acts 4 and in various other places in Acts, Peter filled with the Holy Spirit. He's heard the word, he's received the spirit, the dream is alive. What is it that God has placed on your heart and right now it's buried? Right now it's buried. Maybe because of sin. Maybe because of circumstances. Maybe because of other people. Whatever it may be. And it needs to be resurrected. You need to raise it up again and allow Jesus to breathe his word and spirit into it. Jesus himself, it was spoken and you'll hear it read much probably over the next month or two. You are to give him the name Jesus because he will save his people from their sins. That's the dream. That's the promise and that's what's spoken over his life. But then he dies. (laughs) Whoops. And he's in a grave and the dream's dead. The promise, how can it happen now? And he meets when he's resurrected and somehow disguising his appearance, he meets a couple of people walking along the road to Emmaus and they mournfully say to him, we had hoped that he was the one who would redeem Israel. Because that's what the promise was. We had hoped that that promise would come true, but he's dead. He's dead. But then as Peter preaches and acts, Peter preaches the resurrection and says God exalted him 
to his own right hand as prince and savior that he might bring Israel to repentance and forgive. The dream is alive again. The word spoken over him, the promise was forgiveness for people. The promise lies dead in a tomb, but then is resurrected and people receive forgiveness. In closing, where do dreams die? Where is the place that people most commonly will let go of the thing that has been given to them by God? I think it's the wilderness. And I think, as I've told you before, that what Jesus went through in Matthew 4, in Luke 4 in particular, and that's where the details are given in those two chapters, is vastly more important than we have sometimes thought it is. We've seen the wilderness sometimes as a cute thing that he went through in order to prepare for ministry. And we were missing the magnitude of it. <laughs> because Jesus went into the wilderness... And the way I picture him going in is he's got something in his hand. And what he's got in his hand is the promise from God. You are my son in whom I am well pleased. And that promise from God, if you look into the Old Testament background or if you go back and listen to a message earlier this year from the series on suffering, that promise from God means you are the king and you will suffer. You are the king and you will suffer. That's what that promise meant. And Jesus walks into the wilderness clutching that promise. And when he's in the wilderness, Satan comes along and starts to cast doubt. And I don't believe Satan wanted to kill Jesus in the wilderness. I don't believe Satan even wanted Jesus to stay in the wilderness. I believe the only thing he was interested in is when you go out of this wilderness, you will leave that dream behind you. That's his goal. That is his objective. When we go into those seasons in our lives that we are in a wilderness season, we clutch to what God has given us. The dream, the promise, the calling that he has put over us. We hear the voice of the enemy saying, if you are really that and if God really has called you to that and he starts to cast doubt through our circumstances and through our thoughts and all sorts of things, he tells us that God has abandoned us. He tells us that our, our calling should be just left behind and buried in the wilderness and left and we should just go out and be glad that we are alive. But Jesus doesn't let go of it. He doesn't let go of it. And you better believe one of the most terrifying things. You know, if we could rank the, the you know, the Satan's, list of the most terrifying things I have ever seen. <laughs> Number one is an empty tomb. <laughs> Number two was Jesus walking out of that wilderness still holding on to the dream. Still holding on to it. Still believing, I am the king. I will suffer. That is my calling and I will not leave it here with him. And Jesus, as he walked out of that wilderness, again, picture it against, you know, he was 40 days. He was not looking good physically. Emaciated and, and just haggard in appearance and, and probably not walking very quickly. Probably weak and, and stumbling along a bit physically, but still holding on to it. What is it that the devil would try to wrestle out of your hand? in the wilderness and, and happily send you on your way to just 
tutor along through life without actually doing that kingdom thing that God has called you to do. What is it? Do not let your dream die in the wilderness. Cling to it. Cling to it. Jesus, when he comes out of the wilderness, goes into Galilee in the power of the Spirit. And as I've often said when I've alluded to this passage, all heaven broke loose. Demons scattered everywhere. People healed. Lives transformed. The dead raised. All of the things that he said he would do. He quotes from Isaiah 61 and he, he, he gives his mission statement and his manifesto. And he can now do it because in the wilderness he bound the devil. And he held on to the calling of God in his life. And he got on with it. And maybe some of us need to do that. And stop thinking, it's dead because I did this. It's dead because this has happened. I just need to leave it and turn up to church every week and say my prayers and read my Bible and not actually go on to the front line and do the thing that I know God called me to do. That would be to leave your dream dead in the wilderness and allow the dust and sand to blow over it and leave it there forever. What is it that is stirring in your heart as we look at this simple little concept? What is it that you're thinking, you know what, there was a time... I really felt that I should do this for the kingdom. But then this, 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 and this happened. And I let it die. Satan is terrified when he sees a Christian walking out of the battlefield, walking out of the wilderness, walking back to Galilee, still clinging to the promise. If you have a dead dream, I would urge you, Go upstairs. Go up to the man of God, representing God. Take it up to the place where God is. Set it on the bed and pray and pray and pray and get others to pray and pray at home and pray in there and get others to pray in there with you. Let it rise again. Let there be a resurrection. Let's not have an invisible graveyard around this church that lists loads of things that God put on our hearts, but we didn't do them. Not having that. And I've said before to you, and I've said it to others about you, we are disproportionately gifted in this place. This is not a spectator sport. This is not a consumer church. Come on, what are the dreams and the visions that God has given to you? And what can be done? What can all the rest of us do to see those things raised up and come to life and come to fruition? Jesus has a dream and that's it. I will build my church. And sometimes then you've got to wonder, why do we doubt things that he has called us to as if, as if he's going to renege on that agreement or that declaration? That when we move forward in the power of his spirit, following his lead, doing things to see his church grow and built and people discipled and people born again and whatever it may be, that somehow he's not going to build it. He is. He will build his church. You can give your life to no greater purpose than the church and that might be the local church. That might be missional church planting. It might be some ministry within a church. It might be leading a church. It might be given to a church. But whatever it is, there's nothing greater 
and no larger purpose on this earth than the building of the church. That's Jesus' dream. What is Jesus doing right now at this moment in history? He's building his church. What was he doing a hundred years ago? Building his church. A thousand years ago, building his church. What will he be doing in a hundred years' time if he has not gloriously appeared between now and then? He'll be building his church. So let's get on board. And he needs all of those things that he's placed within us to rise and come to life again. If you want prayer this morning, we'll pray for you. That can be up here as we sing. That can be privately in the prayer room, whatever, whatever you want. But if there's something and you just know, oh, I just need encouraged. I just need someone to agree with me for this thing to rise up again. Let's do that. But folks, let's have, a, let's have a response to this. And I don't mean let's have a response as in a line of people. That's not what I mean. I mean a response in your heart and a movement of obedience to what God is calling you to do. And don't think you're too young and don't think you're too old. All right? Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for this simple truth, Lord, that you love to raise up dead things. And for, Father, for anyone who's here this morning who has something just in their heart that they know they have allowed circumstances to wear it down, to erode it, to allow it to be buried and covered over with dust in the wilderness, Lord God, I pray that you would put fight within them this morning. I pray, God, that your word and your spirit would stir up their hearts to go and to Dig that thing out and see it live again, Father. Lord, you are building your church. You are building your church, Lord. Let us never uh, think that something we do does not count or does not matter or that you will somehow ignore it and not empower it. You are building your church. And Lord, as we set our hearts to join you in that great global mission that has never changed since the dawn of creation, you wanted a people who would bear your image on this earth and show your glory to the world. It has never changed. Lord, stir us up in how we live our lives and how we spend our time, how we spend our money and how we act towards one another and towards the world around us. You're building your church. Oh, Father, use us, Lord. Use us, Lord. Use us, Lord. Awaken us, Father. Awaken us, Lord, from our slumber and our sleep, our procrastination, our tendency to faff around and think next month, next year, once this is done, Lord, may the dream rise and live again in our hearts today. Thank you that you're a life-giving God. In every area, you're a life-giving God. Jesus. Hallelujah.